Welcome everybody to Speaking Greeks. This week we're doing something a little differently with uh, Oinax, aka Matt. First name is Matt. Uh, he's a futures and commodities trader. Uh, we met back in the day doing some crypto stuff. Um, but before we jump into that, I just wanted to uh, give a shout out to everybody that joined us live and remind everybody out there on like Apple and Spotify land that we do host these inter- episodes live every week um, as I schedule them. And the idea is, is to attract an audience so that any kind of questions that you might have for the guests specifically, um, you could jump on stage and join the show and ask away. So um, if this is the first time you're listening or the first time you're hearing that, uh, keep an eye out on the Twitter feed, and um, usually I'm, I'm aiming for like Sunday evenings. Sounds seems like a good time for these episodes. So, um, yeah, that's the goal. That's the game. And uh, so, like I said, this week we got crypto trader, futures trader, commodities trader, uh, longtime trader, and friend Oinax, aka Matt. So, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, no worries, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, fan of your stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, been buddy. too long. Too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's uh let's just jump right in. Let's um I guess let's start way back in the beginning and how we met. Uh we met in the crypto sphere back whenever Bitcoin was only kind of whispered about on the dark net. Yeah, I think it was 2015, 2016. Prior to that, I had some experience quite a bit of experience in agricultural markets and stuff like that and energy markets. Um, buddy got me into crypto probably in like 2012. He was on my ass about it, like in 2011. Um, didn't listen to him. Funny story coming into work, like first job, like legit job I ever got. Um, it was like four o'clock in the morning and NPR came on and they had this 15 minute blurb about Bitcoin. And I was like, wasn't that what my buddy was talking about last year? Long story short, sort of just went down the, the rabbit hole on that one. <laughs> and uh, then you and me met up. Uh, I think I was doing writing for a mutual friend. And that's how you and me sort of got in touch, right? I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, I don't know if anyone really knows that part of my history, but. <laughs> yeah, so back in the day, we whenever uh, Merck and I met up, we would um, – it was the time when crypto was like the Wild West. Like I can remember God candles coming out because Silk Road got shut down, and the darknet controlled the markets. And I made a ton on crypto whenever um, Alpha Bay listed Ethereum, and, and I think they were going to list Zcash right before they got seized. And – yeah, I remember those being like the pumps that we used to chase back then. And uh, yeah, uh, we managed probably, I think it was one of the most, dark, the largest darknet forum at the time. And then when crypto started taking off, that's when I handed it off to that mutual friend because I didn't yep. want, I didn't want no, no opportunity for any kind of like asset seizure and games like that. So I washed my hands and walked away and handed it off to him. And that, yeah, but that, it was about that time frame. Smart thing to do, man. Look what happened yep. to him. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a different story, but no, I was, uh, I was sort of an analyst for him doing uh, a little bit of blog stuff, technical analysis, well, analysis on the technicals of uh, certain projects and stuff like that. 
Um, and that was, that was fun. I mean, back then though, you and me really, I think started trading together though, after that, and it was 2016, 2017, uh, we controlled the verge currency run up and crash. And that was <laughs> one of the funnest times of my life. Uh, fractions on the penny to 32 cents. And it was like, uh, probably oh, one of the best trades I've ever done to tell you the truth. And it was so dumb. It was such a great time, and I don't think we'll ever relive it. I, oh, I, hope, no I, I hope I'll get to, but I don't think we ever will. And it's like, yeah, like so today I can't get on Coinbase. I mean, it's the susp- the suspicion is is a, of manipulating the order book and putting up like the big sell walls and buy walls. And then, like you said, we had we we were swinging altcoins back then, and we had infiltrated that Verge community. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, man, we <laughs> I controlled three percent of the circulating supply. Yeah, like, I remember <laughs> me alone. <laughs> so I mean, we we I think when I was selling it, it cascaded from thirty two cents all the way down to fourteen cents, and I think your sell pushed it down another two cents. But that was at the top. So all all in all, we pushed it down ten tw- to ten twelve cents when all was said and done. Um, just ripped the liquidity right out of the market. It was good times. And yeah, then, but I just um, I'm thinking it is currently at. Three tenths of a penny, never recover. Right where we bought it, yeah, right where we bought it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and that you know, like when when markets are like that, it gives you a lot of insight too, um, because like I did learn a lot from that and how much liquidity you can rip out of a market, even with like less than a percent of the circulating supply in crypto. Now you're never going to get that type of percentage in traditional markets, equity markets, whatever you're talking, you know, whatever you're looking at, you're never going to get that. But in crypto markets, anything's possible. I, I'll never forget the time you reached out to me in 2017. You were like, you should buy this Regal coin. And, you know, I was an analyst and I was like, oh, so Regal Theaters is coming out with a coin. That's cool. And he's like, no, it's just some <laughs> guys in their basement trying to get Regal to, to buy it, it was, off them. That was like the BitConnect uh, market, a business model. Yeah, I think it went from three bucks and you sold it at forty. Like uh, it was seventy. Seventy, okay. Yeah, right. that 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 and Verge are probably my two greatest altcoin trades. But uh, yeah. yeah, but you said that you were trading like in a professional space, crypto. I'm sorry, I dropped my uh, headphones. Got big ears. What'd you say? All right, Mickey Mouse. Uh, if, <laughs> <laughs> did you? Um, you said that you traded like more professionally prior to crypto, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I worked for some distributors before that, agricultural distributors, um, energy distributors, and those guys do play futures markets. Um, they're kind of looking for positions that have backwardation, which we, we'll get into all that technical stuff a little bit later. Uh, when I start to, I want to break down uh I know you guys are options guys. I want to break down actually what a futures contract is, what goes into it and all that stuff. So everyone can sort of follow along, but yeah. So I, uh, forestry and like the lumber products, the, I grew up in a farm town, so I was pretty familiar with, uh, the corn and wheat and just like overall livestock and stuff like that. So I kind of like had a, my whole life, I kind of had that like sort of background. I, I typically stay away from equities. I mean, I will go into some equity uh, because I was an analyst for some hedge funds. 
uh, later on in life, and we can go into that. Um, but yeah, I, so I started off sort of doing that. I was on an asset management team um, for in an energy sector for eight, nine years, something like that. Um, wasn't too fun, but it exposed me to a lot. And I mean, one of the biggest takeaways I can I can give to any trader right now, and it doesn't matter if you're playing options, futures, if you're a value investor, whatever you are, just get like, become an expert in one to three things and stick with those one to three things because it will pay off in the long run. Like you'll know that market inside and out. Jumping all over the place, uh, which you're like, going into biotech, then you're going into like, you know, fertilizer markets, then you're jumping into gold and silver guys, like you, you're just going to get crushed. You're going to get crushed. And it's happened to me. I think my biggest loss today is 155k. And I, I still like wince at that. <laughs> that. That was a pretty big loss. And that's another thing I'm probably going to get into a little bit later is just risk overall risk management. I think, you know, I'm a directional trader. I know you have a lot of non-directional guys come on the, from what I've heard, come on your uh, show, but you know, directional trading, the number one thing that you should really remember is just having a really, really solid uh, risk management and also risk analysis. After you make the trade, what could you have done better? What are you losing at? Why weren't you profitable? And really going over those trades, whether you're doing it on a quarterly basis, uh, I wouldn't go further than that, but a weekly basis, daily basis, however, however into it you want to actually get. And uh, there's some mathematical models we can we can look at. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you want me to dive right into the futures aspect, I can. If you want to talk more about crypto, we can do that, with however you want to do this, man. Well, were were those financial positions? So, like the way, okay. So, with uh, my startup with the data center, uh, it it does the AI machine learning stuff, and one of our biggest uncontrollable expenses is the electric rate. So, um, one of my tasks were to learn the futures market a little bit to be able to hedge against the increasing electricity because where I'm at in Pennsylvania, like we're, we're com- I remember when we were mining and doing the research that we were competitive with a, like a lot of the hydro plants in Canada or like in China. And um, so at, and then in Jan, you know, Russia, Ukraine, energy, energy, energy prices skyrocketed. So we were going to start – we were finally proving our use case and um, negotiating electric rates. And our plan was to hedge the rates with futures contracts. So were – like when you – like the positions you just discussed, were they financial positions or like were you a farmhand that was uh, buying puts on corn to hedge against rising prices? <laughs> no, I wasn't a farmhand. Um, so <laughs> as a, as a distributor, yeah, you're, you're looking at, um, a multitude of things. Essentially what a distributor does is he grabs like the raw product from the farmhand and, and then gives it to the buyer, whether it's a grocery store or, um, whatever, if you're talking about energy, uh, in the energy sector, I was, I've done sort of two roles. I was, uh, with the distributor of oil, which, you know, they have terminals all across the country and you work for these terminals. Basically what a terminal is, is you essentially just get the import from whether it's uh, Exxon or, or whoever the producer is. 
and then you basically distribute it out to the gas stations and or whoever the energy uh, customer is. And what you're trying to do is you're probably trying to see about, I mean, most publicly traded companies in the energy sector, they're looking for about, they try to push 14% profit margins, but they're, they're usually around eight. Um, so there, there's a pretty big uh, premium that they throw on everything. And that's sort of like what we were trying to do is maximize that profit margin uh, for the investors and stuff like that. Um, as far as agriculture goes, I mean, those guys are kind of crooks to tell you the truth. Um, they'll buy like a chicken for like a 50 cents and then they'll sell it for six to the grocery store. And then the grocery store will sell it to you for like 12, like the whole chicken. So, you know, like they, their profit margins insane. So, but these are the guys that are essentially just buying it, the raw product and, and giving it out to, on the consumer level. Is that That's pretty much. So it's kind of like the matchmaker. Is that like a third party? Would you, were you considered like a third party or would you have been an employer of the energy company or the farm? So most of it's con contracted out in the energy sector. So um, it, it's how they can cut down on, on benefits. They're, they're really cheap. Everything's publicly traded. So they're going to cut down on everything they possibly can. So they'll bring in anyone um, if you have that background or that expertise. And a lot of it is looking at the futures. Um, typically, if they can get a good uh, price that's going to equate to some sort of backwardation in the end, they'll take delivery. Uh, because they essentially bought that uh, futures contract at a, a much lower price than the futures price. So their forward price, when I say forward price, it's basically that month's price. So every single contract has a different month. Uh, the lettering is really weird. The contract code is essentially the product name, then it's the month, and then it's the year. So if I wanted to do, let's say, corn uh september 2024 the contract code would look like zcu i believe it is for september 24 and you would look at that contract and if it was trading underneath the actual um, futures price so that forward price is trading under the futures price you would buy that and hope that um by the time that that contract expires you're still underneath that price. And then what will happen is the margin maintenance will start to increase because they're getting ready for delivery. Typically these are like, this is about one month out. They, they kind of slow up the trading, all the open interest is exiting the market and then it'll cross over and hit that boundary and uh, between the forward price and the futures price and you're gonna get that delivery. So they're, they're looking for deals essentially in the futures market. So, and they're yeah. hoping that the price is gonna um, uh, continue to go up ultimately. Yeah. And I was thinking about the famous story from wall street bets. Whenever, uh, over COVID the guy that got paid to buy the oils con oil contracts for like negative 32 bucks. And he thought he was a genius. And then he ended up having to take delivery for what? Well, okay. So how, how much oil is in one contract? like a thousand the, barrels the, the wti which i believe he did take what so there's, i think there's a few things going on in that story i think he so 
Futures start to slow up probably a month out. Like if you're an active futures trader, you never want to take delivery. You need to offset your contract, roll over if you don't want to take delivery, probably about a month to two months out. Once you get into that month, you're kind of like locked into it. The the mercantile exchange, whatever you're using, is gonna is gonna make make you take delivery. Because once you enter that position, you have to give them certain things like delivery date, uh, delivery location. You need to give them all this information. So it's kind of um, you're screwed if if you're not out of that offset, offset it or roll it by that time. And what he did, I believe there was still a little bit of open interest in one of the contracts that was about to expire. And he bought it and got a guy out of it. And he ended up taking that delivery because it was so close to expiration. And I don't know if he was an options trader and thought that that was the way to go or, or what the deal was, why he did that. But um, ultimately, yeah, he, he took a hit on that. But if he was to, so if you do ever end up taking delivery, there's, there's a few things you can do. You have to pay for the storage, which is extremely expensive, but you can start contacting distributors. And they'll pr most likely take it off your hands. Um, they're probably going to throw a premium on it, and you're probably going to take a hit. But it's better being, you know, it's better than getting a thousand barrels of oil in your garage. You know. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember reading the comments, and people were like, "I own, I own an open field in Alabama. Like, DM me, and we can talk about how we can figure this out." And yeah, but I, I don't think he was. Um, I don't think he was educated in what he was doing. I think he just saw, wow, I can get paid to buy this contract and never consider that that like we're trading real things. And that's why I wanted to get you on too, is I think it's interesting to talk about futures and commodities because I think that they are getting um, a lot more attention now with the way the market is and everybody's kind of future outlook. And you know, whenever you sell a put on Facebook or Amazon or whatever, and you take assignment, it's still not real. You know, like I know that the equity has value, but it's it's really a number on the screen still. But whenever you're in a situation like this Wall Street bets guy, or uh, I don't know, you get assigned on a contract of corn or apple juice concentrate, you know, like you have to be prepared to take delivery of a physical product as opposed to um, a number of shares in your think or swim dashboard. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of like, I think the turnoff for a lot of people to not trade, this is the physical delivery of potentially getting 4,800 gallons of apple juice concentrate, you know, like that, that'd be a tough one to explain to the wife. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that's the big turnoff, but you know, that doesn't mean that you can't make an absolute fortune. Um, if you're really good at risk management and discipline and just like do, running the numbers, like finding that notional value of, of your contract, how much you're actually playing. And once you've learned that you're going to be like, Holy crap, there's like a ton of, uh, th these positions are just massively over leveraged. Um, like, you know, when you find a notional value, what you're looking to do is you're trying to look at the notional multiplier. Uh, corn is 33, gold is 100. Now, gold is interesting because they actually do it on the weight instead of just like a, you know, corn is 5,000 bushels. Well, a gold contract is 120 ounces. They use that 100 on the weight side as the notional multiplier. So if a contract is going for $1,000, to find the notional value, take that 
notional multiplier and times it by the, the contract price. And now you can start to see the immense like leveraged position you have. Um, and that, that will determine how much money you make per tick. Now ticks like sort of is going to make or break you. Right. So the tick, um, you know, the tick size is usually given to you by the exchange. That could be five cents. That could be 10 cents. That could be 25 cents. Uh, could be a dollar if they wanted to do it. And what that essentially does is that's when you start making money. So if the price go only goes up a cent, but you know, the tick size is five cents, you're not getting it until you get that five cents. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Is it so like it's like whenever like uh the S P futures only move at like twenty five cents? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, exactly. So like I think that's the ES. I don't I don't trade it too yes. much. It got wiped on it once. Um yeah, so if it was twenty five cents and you only move ten cents, you're not gonna see that profit or or loss if you're going the other way. Um and then to find the value of that tick, you need to times the the tick price times the contract size and that'll sort of show you like okay like per tick i'm making 480 bucks a tick and that's a lot and then if you have multiple contracts you have to take that and then times it by how many contracts you have so now you know you're you're starting to understand um when you're taking on these positions you got to look at risk management and that's something that it drives me nuts but it's like a necessary evil. Everyone wants to be greedy. Um, you really have to have control of your emotions. I have pretty much completely stopped drinking since I've been doing this, uh, which I know is probably even a shock for you, Kirk. But, um, you know, I think that just drives like emotional uh, and irrational sort of thought. Um, definitely have calmed down in the last couple of years doing this. And, you know, I think with good risk management, and good hedging of the risk you can get there and there's a top couple different ways you can hedge your risk you can do something called an intro uh market spread which is essentially a calendar spread if i were to let's say i'm looking at corn and i, I long the september futures well one way i can hedge my risk is by shorting next year's Mar march futures so if, if I do take a hit on that, at least I got that short on the other end. And then you can do uh, intercommodities, um, intercommodity spread. I personally don't like these, but it, it's something you can do. That's like longing gold, shorting silver at the same time. Um, I don't think it, I don't do them that much. I've only done it on the same month. I think you can switch up the month. So if you really wanted to not really an expert on that because i just don't do it and then there's the commodity product spreads which is essentially like uh longing soybean and shorting soybean meal so like it's, you're shorting the raw thing and you're longing the byproduct as a hedge or or vice versa um it, it's it's a way to make sure that you don't get absolutely slammed but on top of that you also need to have um sort of like some sort of risk management, right? You need that 2% on the accounts size. Like, so if you're trading a hundred thousand, if your account's worth a hundred thousand, you're taking a contract out, let's say for, 
$1,000, but your margin maintenance, which is the additional costs, like it's almost like your insurance, if you will, is like at 10,000. You want a margin maintenance to be around 10%. You don't want to go any more. You don't want to go any less. Um, if you were to take on that, you would want 2,000. You, were, you would be willing to take a $2,000 hit. Even though you're only trading with about $10,000, you still want to have that 2% because your account size is um, 100000 But you, I've also heard other people doing it with the, the notional value. So like notional value, uh, the, you know, notional value would be like, let's say for corn, I think it's usually around 33,000. You just do 33,000 on that, uh, 2% on that 33,000. Right. And then span margin is the risk when it comes to futures, right? It, it can expand really quickly. Yeah, that's the margin maintenance. So yeah, okay. like that, 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 so as you're getting closer to delivery, that's going to increase a substantially and also the time you have in is going to increase it so a lot of people like on the weekends that are kind of like retail traders what they'll do is they will scalp on the weekend in and out like just get in and out and honestly if you're doing something like that you don't really need to worry too much about margin maintenance it should be in the back of your mind you should definitely uh keep that in mind because if you go over your margin maintenance it's not going to go well for you you're probably going to get wiped so. so are there any like significant differences? So we know options are kind of like a layer on top of futures contracts. So for example, the ES is 50 futures contracts. So yep. is there any other like key differences besides like physical delivery between a futures contract and an options contract besides like varying size, physical delivery, and uh, yeah, you know. The, besides the immense leverage you can have on it, um, uh, there's four characteristics that make up an options, I mean, a, a futures contract, and that's the underlying, the quantity, which would be like the notional value, uh, the delivery and, and the delivery date. And that pretty much makes up a futures contract. I mean, I've seen some insane futures products out there. Uh, that's, that's another difference between the two. Like, you're not going to be able to find an options on apple juice concentrate. <laughs> you just, you're just not. Or orange, uh, orange juice, or whatever. Like I, I think Minnesota Mercantile Exchange, or whatever they're called, they have all these really, really obscure ones. Um, you know, but th the other thing too is like when you're when you're trading these options, you, I mean, these futures. I keep saying options. Um, you gotta really, really watch the open interest and not the volume, because the volume just shows the people that are. The activity, I guess, you is a good way to say it. The activity within that, but if you were to look at the open interest, now you can see all the holders of those contracts. And when that starts to shrink, you need to make a decision: do you roll it, do you offset it and get out of the position, or do you take delivery? You know, and I, I think that uh, they work a little bit differently in that sense because. You, one thing you can get caught in the futures market is if all of a sudden you're the only guy holding the bag, you know, kind of goes back to crypto. Like the last guy that's holding the bag is kind of SOL. There's no liquidity in the market. You can't sell. So what are the mechanics, like what are the mechanics of a, uh, of like a futures contract trade? So in options, for example, you know, like tasty trade is 45 DTE managed at 21 DTE. What, 
is kind of like the gold standard when it comes to like futures contracts and how many days expiration and management and stuff like that? Um, well, like I said, you, when you're getting up on that month, like horizon before expiration, you don't want to be in that position because the open interest is just going to get sucked right out and you're going to be stuck. So you want to get out as soon, uh, as soon as you start to get close to that, maybe even a little bit before I usually trade futures probably like three months out. Um, yeah, just about three months, three, four months out. I don't really, and I'm not in it for very long because that, that tick value, like you could have one day you go up like a thousand ticks and then you're just sort of like, maybe not a thousand ticks, but you go up a lot. Um, and then, you know, you don't, you can offset it. You've already made your money. You don't need to stay in it anymore. Right. Like that. I think that's the thing. There's not really like any, um, Greeks, if you will. Uh, but I do know that there's a lot of interest right now going into um, options on futures, which is interesting to me. Um, I've been dabbling with that a little bit. I think, you know, looking at what you guys play on the S&P versus the ES, I think it's it's still not there. The money's not there. The interest isn't there, but it's growing and it's growing pretty quick, um, which is interesting just to see that sort of difference. I've been seeing a, a a mesh like a mesh of the two. Uh, like I'll see a lot of people where they will, you know, they'll sell some contracts on the SPX and then they use ES to hedge, and they play That's it that way as like a, and they have a nice little blend of futures and options. Yeah. So and and one thing the difference between I guess the two is that if you take at most options are 100 shares there are some options out there that's like only 10 shares but when you're talking about options on futures it's only one contract it's not like 100 contracts it's only one so um there's more money to be made not on options when you're talking about like s p or I, I don't think that there's any individual stocks or anything like that so yeah i think it's all well it varies so the es options on the es is 50 contracts but I think it, and then um, I believe Bitcoin, I never got to trade options on Bitcoin futures because TD Ameritrade won't let me, but I think it's like, I don't even know. Cause I'd have to think, I don't even remember what the Bitcoin contract size and it's like 25 Bitcoin for the slash BTC. For but, options? Uh, yeah. Oh really? Do or five Bitcoin, it's five Bitcoin. They actually have those? What, options or futures? Options on crypto? Uh, I can see an options chain for slash BTC, but uh, TD Ameritrade told me there's not enough volume to offer the options contracts. Oh, wow. Okay. But they are out there somewhere. Because like uh, a like year ago, know. that wasn't even a thing. Yeah, so no, they're out. They're traded somewhere. I just don't know where. And I never really looked because I'm assuming if, they, if the volume's not enough for them, then I'm, I'm good. The bid yeah. ask has to be super wide. Yeah, and that's I, I think that's the way people are looking at it. I, I, I just did some calculations today just to see the risk or reward or, or how much mo potential money profit you could make off of uh, the, just doing flat S&P options versus ES. And ES isn't even close uh, to the money you can make just doing the right. So I don't know where this is going. I think ultimately what they're going to be trying to do is uh, options on commodities, not necessarily ES, but more geared towards like uh, corn and wheat and just opening up those sort of financial products to people. And, and, and they act pretty 
they act a lot differently. So like when you're, when you're talking about equities, uh, when I was working for a hedge fund, one of the things that we would do for stocks was um, fundamental analysis, whether you're talking about qualitative or quantitative. Quantitative is like looking at balance sheets, cash flow statements, um, stuff like that, you know. Um, even value investors use it. So like a value investor would go into something like FinBiz and start pulling apart like the price to earnings, the forward price to earnings, the price to earnings to growth, look at the current ratio, quick ratio, uh, debt on equity and all that stuff. Mainly what they're going to be doing as a value investor is they're going to be looking at the PE and the forward PE. If the PE is at like 15, you want that forward PE to be below that. Now, there are some cases, and 15 is usually where you want the PE to be. And that PE is all based on the earnings per share. So it's like calculated through that. But there are certain sectors that have the uh, price to earnings up around like 55, 60. But that's, if you go and look at their competitors, they're probably around the same. And if they're not, and they're a lot lower, that company's probably not going to do too well. Um, so, it, and then... You know, if you really want, and th this is where I can spin it back into commodities and, and agriculture is like the qualitative side, right? So like one way you can really get an edge on the market that I, I found working with people in hedge funds is a qualitative side, like um, finding risk factors. That's, that's huge right now because the market's not looking that great. We <laughs> We just, you know, this, I, I don't want to blame it on the war in Ukraine, but I don't think it was necessarily a good idea, but it, it's kind of crushing certain things. And um, looking at the 10Ks and the 10Qs on the SEC filings, if you go to um, the quantitative and qualitative risk sections, they'll be pretty definitive on what's going to make their, you know, their, their stock crash. And you can kind of get a good idea like and keep up to date quarterly now the 10ks are the annual and those are probably going to give you a little bit more information but you're also going to have to dig a little bit more you're going to have to go into like uh the footers and and find stuff there on top of that other stuff they seem to add a lot more uh but just know that it, because it's an annual report you're going to be most likely uh, having a little bit of lag time. You know how these markets work. There's always lag. It's just a question of when and trying to figure out when that's going to happen. When When is this actually going to get affected? If the logistics chains break down, how much longer do I have? Like, I think they were talking about, I just saw it today, the energy um, department at the Fed level was talking about like diesel is going to be pretty much completely run out by Thanksgiving. So we have like 20 something days. And if you know anything about trucking is they all, they all use diesel. So what is that going to do for the commodities market? The, most commodities work off of logistics. So these are things that I also keep in the back of my mind when I'm trading futures on agricultural products. That was actually my next question whenever to segue us into uh, risk management. Because I know that like with equities, we obviously had some kind of um, geopolitical risk, you know, Ukraine, like, like you said, Ukraine, Russia happened, everything kind of tanked, COVID happened straight down. But I feel like commodities carry a lot more of that risk. Would that be, would mm. that be true? Yeah, I was talking to like one of my mentors uh, over the summer 
and um, we I was talking about I think longing natural gas going into the the uh, the winter. Like I thought that was a great idea, and he was like, "Yeah, that normally would be a good idea, but every commodity I know is super overextended right now." So like you're you're putting on a massive amount of risk by going long, and that was something I didn't even think about. Like uh, I look, went back and started looking at you know when COVID hit and the logistic chains broke down and all these things, and it's just been sort of going up. It's like there's <laughs> just up 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 up. Um, there are you know a few. I, I I won't get into sort of my secret sauce here with um, some of the commodities that I trade, but. There are a few commodities that are still acting the same way. Uh, so I, I take out a particular short during pollination season of one particular agricultural product. In the last 30 years, it has a 90% hit rate. In the last 10 years, it has a 95. So it hits pretty good. Um, and it drops about 20% within the span of about a week to two weeks. And that is like sort of my bread and butter. Um, and even with the market extension, that still is good. So what I've sort of noticed is that, you know, if you go back before all this time, we do have flat periods. But the problem is, is you know, with geopolitical stuff, you said uh, hyperinflation, all these things that are happening right now, markets aren't having that like cool down period. They're just going up and up and up. So eventually, um, I'm hoping commodities start to stabilize a little bit. I really am. Um, it would, I, I enjoy the unstabilization. That's actually where I make the money. But for the average person, I, for their sake, I kind of hope that they start to flatline a little bit or go. Yeah, down. that would that would be my fear at this point in the game too. It's like everything is super extended, and I think that uh, you know it, tomorrow morning we could wake up and the White House releases a plan to do something about oil and gas, and then that results in the price plummeting and you know and i just feel like i mean like i said i i know that i still carry that risk in the stock market but i feel like it's a lot more amplified and um less controlled by american policy you know because like i so i've been seeing a lot on twitter where people are saying that you know a real bear market crash and capitulation and stuff isn't going to happen because if it does, it's the end of the world and the Fed needs to kick the can down the road one more time. So they're bullish on the fact that the government, the United States will not let the system break and they'll figure yeah. out a way to cheat the game again. Well, and, yeah, that's so that that's the problem. And I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like they, they the way I look at it is the Fed has two options. They can protect the markets or they can protect the dollar. And I think at this point, uh, they're not really protecting either one of them too too well. They're trying. It's like they're trying to like fight for both of them. But we're we're watching in live time how that's working out, and it's just it, it's kind of a mess. Um, yeah, I think they were talking about um, potentially giving out. I think it was like they have on reserve a million barrels of diesel so if they do come to december and we still don't have diesel they have a million you know what you know how long that's gonna last it's gonna last six hours <laughs> it's not enough. Say, it doesn't it doesn't sound like much no it's not but that's all they have on the reserves because 
some of our leaders have been giving it out to other countries to help them out. And it, it's sort of, it's going to come back to bite us. Um, and, and going back to the commodities market, especially the energy market is um, it's probably right now, one of the easiest things to trade because it's all just open the newspaper, get on the computer, open up the trade, offset it at the end of the day and walk away because it's all event driven analysis which is a form of uh, qualitative analysis. Um, that's, that's one of the few things that you can also lump into the qualitative side, the research-based stuff, but uh, it's all event-driven analysis because no one really knows what the heck's going on. I mean, how many hedge funds are getting wiped right now? So there's a lot that are getting wiped. So when you say when you say offset at the end of the day, what do you mean? Do you mean like go flat close, and close, close the close position? position. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 just to be clear. So what kind um, of risk what kind of risk management do you use in in like is it is it just stops are you manipulating other future data contracts and trying to roll kind of like in the options world um keeping the dream alive Yeah I, well one thing is I never defend a position that's I I just cut take the losses because I have predefined risk um so it depends if I'm scalping I'm just sticking with a two like honestly if I'm scalping I'm sticking with like a 1% rule like if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll just take the 1% hit um, on the account size. If I'm taking like that, that one I was telling you with the hit rates uh, that I get like 90% in the last 30 years on that agricultural product, I will use something like a calendar spread where I'm hedging some risk, but I'm also doing it like a two to, I'll, I'll probably extend the risk a little bit more because it has such a high probability of success to like maybe 3%. So I'll take like, I have a hundred thousand dollar account. I'll take like uh, per contract. I'll probably take like a risk factor of like three thousand dollars. So that's what I'm looking. I'll take out some pretty good risk on that. But though, you know, when I'm doing calendar spreads, when I'm doing these types of things, they're longer dated. We're talking about like a week to two weeks. We're not talking about scalping or intraday trading. Right. Okay. And um. I forgot what question you said. You said that you were whenever you say longer data. You said you typically go like ninety days out there, right? No, no, no. Futures, I'm only doing maybe like longest two weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, two weeks because I, you know, the way I used to just, and I think you knew me back then, but I used to be a technical trader, technical analysis. That that's all I did gotten to the fundamental analysis side and now i only use technical analysis uh to find entries like that's all i use it for um and that's how i like to use it and it's been very successful for me so um if i'm taking out a trade i'm not using technical analysis. i'm using technical analysis to find the entries but not predict like when that entry is potentially going to happen i'm going to use the event driven analysis or i'm going to look for Specific things, if you're, you know, I don't do equities, but if you were looking for equities, let's say that like the earnings went way down, that would be like an event or something. If it was in there, there are risk factors on the 10Ks or 10Qs that like, you know, if this happens, the the price of the share is going to go down. And then you see it on the the um, SEC filings, you're going to, you're going to immediately react to that, right? Like that's. I guess that hopefully answers your question. Yeah, that's what we were. We were chart monkeys back in the day, man. We had all sorts of indicators and lines and everything. But I, th oh, I yeah. think we both came to that same conclusion where 
I do much better <laughs> with just open high, open high, low close and some support resistance trend lines, like no clouds, no moving averages, no waves. <laughs> yeah, it's easy, man. Just, you know, buy low, sell high. It's really yeah. easy. <laughs> yeah, I, what, I, what I do is I typically wait until it's low and then as it goes higher, I sell it. Yeah, easy peasy. Really easy. Now, I will, I will say uh, I do sometimes use the cloud, but I, I still do it. But the only reason I do it is for confirmations. Like You're talking about the Ichimoku cloud, right? Yeah, know, yeah. Not and, the Kiska and, clouds. Right, right. Uh, so when I'm using those, those are you don't want to use those more than uh, like on candles that are more than four hours. You want to be using them on, you know, anything under four hours. They don't do well with longer dated candles. They just don't. Uh, now those so clouds that, were those were invented because of rice futures, if I remember right. Japanese I rice futures. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you are right on that. Yep. And it it, it proves really well, I've noticed, on the intra, like when you're trading, like, day trading and and breaking things down in a four hour 45 minute candles um so i don't use them all the time i really don't um but when i'm doing day trading which is very rare these days that's that's kind of what i'm doing so and earlier we were discussing pair trading i think you said like your example was if you went long gold and maybe short silver like are there other the, is that a common tactic in in futures yeah. like what are some yeah. other combos yeah um so I, there's there's pretty much three only three um th there is a fourth um but i'll be honest i don't know really how they work and you have to be you just have to know the correlations between two completely different products that are somehow correlated but we won't get into that so there's the intramarket which are calendar spreads so like you're staying within the same commodity right uh corn you're, you're buying that to go long on the September contract, but you're shorting next year's March contract. So you're hedging your risk. So if the futures price goes up, you're golden. Uh, you have that 2% risk on next year's um, uh, position you have, you know, you'll be fine. It'll get tripped and you'll, you'll sail. But for whatever reason, if it goes against you, you have a longer dated position that is on the short side. So you're, you're hedging your risk on that backside. Do they ever do any sense. kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does there, is there any kind of like equities and futures blends that they do like that? So like maybe long Apple and uh, hedge it with um, semiconductors or um, long, long Exxon and hedge it with shorting oil. Yeah. That's so that's like, so, I mean, I don't think there is an Exxon futures, uh, but no, no, no. I mean, like I buy, I buy Exxon, maybe, maybe a whole oil ETF, yeah, and and then short it with like an oil future. Is there, is that, is that a common thing in the futures markets, like where they blend equities and futures, or is that kind you of can. like a, yeah, or is absolutely. that kind of like a phenomenon in zero DTE land where they're doing like the SPX and the ES blend? What I've learned is like, if, it, if you can figure out something that works for you, do it, Wh whether that's a blend or not. I do think that there are a few people I know that do that. Um, when I was getting my certification, I, I know a few guys who were doing that. Um, it's kind of interesting to hear them talk about it. Uh, 
there's also commodity product spreads, which I've also, I, I think I mentioned earlier, which is like taking a position, let's say longing soybean and shorting soybean meal, right? So you're taking the raw product and the byproduct and you're doing the opposites. It's kind of like the same thing as an inner commodity spread, like I said, with gold and silver, but it's just the raw and the byproduct. And then there's that fourth one I was, I thought you were getting at that fourth one um, where it's like two completely unrelated sectors, but they do have some sort of correlation. And I, I don't do that. And I wish I could, I'm drawing a blank on an example, but I know some people do do that too. It's just finding that correlation and sticking with it. So do you do anything in the, in like currencies? You mentioned the dollar. Do you ever deal with any kind of currencies? Uh, when I was younger, that's what I was trading. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> I think I told you that my TD account, I'm not allowed on it and there's a reason for it. And it was because of, um, stuff like that with currencies and stuff. So, um, yeah, like uh, right now, I think one of the biggest traded currencies besides the U S dollar is the British pound. Um, that's got a really good correlation. Um, the CAD, the Canadian dollars got good correlation. Um, Euros up there, it's getting up there, but believe it or not, one of the most traded things besides, uh, the WTI, which is crude oil, um, is the 10 year U S bond, which I, I actually find, you know, kind of crazy. Yeah, the, um, yeah, that's what the, what I'm getting to is there's a lot of popularity I'm seeing now in the managed future space. Specifically, there's an ETF called uh, DBMF, and it's a managed futures ETF. And they essentially take from a very high 10,000 foot point of view, they take um, they're tracking an index. I believe it's called the SockGen index. And uh, but basically they are tracking a number of firms that to eliminate the single manager risk. And uh, but they look at like four or five different markets, I believe, and mm -hmm. basically build an index to kind of have an uncorrelated uh, an un uncorrelated asset compared to like the S&P. And, you, and I know that like the dollar mm -hmm. euro and I want to say the the on yen you want i don't know yeah i'm not yeah. gonna break yeah i'm not even gonna pretend right now i'm not cultured i'm pencil tucky um <laughs> so gotcha. but do you do you know anything about that as far as like uh using i guess futures as a as a hedge against an entire portfolio yeah you could do that you could do that i'm not saying you couldn't i, I i've never done it personally um like one thing i've i think i've learned over the years is I don't put all my eggs into one basket. I try to diversify um, as much as I can. And that sort of like has brought me a lot of success. So I'm good at futures, but if I'm being honest, I make a lot of passive income in other places. Um, and I think that's another massive piece of advice, you know, I, I could give to your listeners is, you know, don't think that you're going to make all your money off, off of trading. Um, you know, I, I think investing in some other forms of passive income, whether it's real estate, whether it's payment processors, you know, whatever you got to do. Um, but always keeping your foot in the door 
in the markets and, and being very market savvy is, is always just another form of uh, potentially making good money and, and becoming successful. And I think that once you start to find these strategies, whether you're talking about what you're talking about, you know, uh, using futures potentially to hedge against other things, and you can find that hedge, um, you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for success. These guys who just go in blindly, like the, the oil guy we were talking about earlier, they're the guys who are going to get wrecked. The guys who aren't hedging anything, they're just like, oh, I can make a quick buck, them paying me to get this contract. <laughs> they, they don't know what they're doing. They've done no research. They're just going to get wrecked. The more you expand your knowledge and think, you know, yeah, we're all traders. That, that's great. But what else are you doing besides just trading? That's what's going to, it's a slow, it's a slow accumulation. Like before you know it, you're like, wow, I have a lot of money. I'm doing really well. Because one thing I did learn back in 2017, when you and me did very well in the markets was um, if I wanted to continue to be a trader, I can't touch that money. I got to keep trading with it. And, it, and I don't want to live in a basement my whole life. You know, like that was, that's, that's the problem with being a trader is like you, you create this poor, massive portfolio, you continue to trade and then you're always in the markets. Uh, the guys who are living kind of like, look, like very well, they're, they're semi-retired, right? They're, they're not taking out trades every single day. And for the smaller accounts out there, like the, unfortunately, the way you have to kind of roll it is you have to have quality exposure but not overexposure so that it's just so much more time commitment with the smaller accounts. Um, and we were all there. I know you were there. I, I was there at one point, like we were all there. So it, it, eventually your day will come if you keep at it. It's like the rite of passage. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has to suffer a little bit. So like, speaking of um, alternative forms of income, you mentioned being certified. To, and what what was that certification? I know it was options, but was it specifically futures, futures options? No, futures and options. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's through a certification uh, council through the CME. So um, it's a newer certification out there. Uh, it's a lifetime. There's no CEUs or any of that stuff you have to worry about. Once you get it, you get it. Um, and if you do really well on it, you kind of get put into an SRP pool, which is, they call it the SRP pool. It's a hedge fund pool for applicants. And um, I think that certification is given out three times a year, something like that. Um, and there's some placement with, if you want to take a class, there are placements out there. Um, and yeah, that's one way. I mean, I was working for a hedge fund before, before I did that. But so I've been- I was just about to ask funds. if that's how you landed no. your job at the fund. No, I, so that was a. I've been in four funds. Yeah, I've yeah been in you're four you're funds. you're a bear market employee. <laughs> I am, <laughs> I am. I do very well at shorting things. Uh, so the first one I worked for was like completely black swan. All I did was short, made tons of money, and then the PM was like, portfolio manager was like, "All right, we're done here." Like we all we all made our money, and I was like, I. I didn't make as much money as you guys. I'm still, I'm still hungry, you know? So um, they went off and then um, went over to a different fund that did a bunch of different stuff, real estate. Uh, they had a, 
they've been around for a while. They were kind of like a larger cap fund. They um, they were notorious in the '90s for doing um, something called. I didn't realize this until later, but they were doing uh, in the '90s something called viaticals, which I think I've talked to you about a little bit. For anyone who doesn't know, that's when a hedge fund approaches someone who's terminal, and they'll give them eighty percent of their life insurance policy. Uh, oh for, yeah, yeah, we did talk so about they, this. Yeah, yeah, explain that a little more. That's that's an interesting, yeah. interesting market for the immoral, yeah. or maybe not immoral. It might yeah, not be. Yeah, I know. I'm issue. conflicted, I I, I'm conflicted I'm too. Con I mean, I'm not opposed to dabbling if I could find the right market. But yeah, explain that a little more. Yeah. So in the '90s, viaticals were uh they were 80s and 90s i want to say that's when they were kind of big that's when hedge funds were, were really just trying to you know they were they were being in a hedge funds like just straight up hustle half the time and this was one of the hustles is they would go out and find these people that were terminally ill um and offer them 80 percent of their life insurance policy and if the guy accepted he would get you know 80 percent of his policy given right to him and the hedge fund would be the beneficiary. Now it was a gamble because some people that were terminal, you know, they, they ended up getting better. So there was a little bit of a gamble, but the probability was really low that they that they were gonna eat it for another 20, 30 years. Um, and also some people were taking a court, I believe in the late nineties, early two thousands. And some of the courts sided with the old beneficiaries, you know, the, the son, the daughter, whoever it may be. And then some didn't. So there, there was a legal battle back and forth. Some funds still do it and they, they try to get away with it. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept by articles. Um, I mean, what's any, how's it any different from like JG Wentworth I, and like getting my settlement early? I think JG Wentworth was one of the people. <laughs> well, JG Wentworth, they were the lawyers, right? The, yeah, like they they were the they were the lawyers that were going after the hedge funds with the viaticals back in the nineties. It's a funny you bring that up. They they were they were one of the lawyers that were doing the class action lawsuits against them. So were were they suing their competition then? JG Wentworth. Yeah, because they buy out like settlements and annuities and uh, lottery payments. Oh, maybe I have that wrong. I don't know what JG Wentworth does. I thought they were a lawyer firm. If, if they're just a firm, uh, then they were the lawyers went after them. I know that they had some role in the viatical sort of dilemma. I've never done a viatical. I've never put never a heard the Wentworth song. What's that? You've never heard the JG Wentworth song? Like, like when I was four. Cash now? <laughs> when I was like four or five. They've been around forever. <laughs> So, yeah, no, uh, it, it's an interesting concept, the whole biotical thing. Um, but th that's what these hedge, you know, hedge funds do is they go out and they, they literally try anything they possibly can to just make money. It's like, honestly, like if you can find the biggest hustler, just bring him into a hedge fund and let him go nuts and he'll probably do well, to tell you the truth. So you're at a, you're at a fund now? Um, Part-time. Part -time, part time. What was yeah. say? Was day in the life at the hedge fund like? Depends on the fund. Um, now it's uh, risk and I just do risk analysis. So I do mathematical equations, expectations, I should say, um, and just sort of like look at the traders' um, stuff. 
you know, if a trader, I, I run this equation on each trader and if the traders aren't getting above zero or whatever the PM wants to set, set that hurdle at, um, I, I try to break down their trades and see what they're doing wrong and tell them not to do that anymore. You know, because so, a lot of times there's consistencies, like they're just consistently taking too much risk on a particular trade and they're getting wiped and I have to go and now you can't do this anymore. You know, so you're like, like a that. second, you're a second set of eyes after ex, like reviewing executed trades. Yeah. And I have like a whole spreadsheet that just basically runs everything for me. So I just can plug in the raw data and it, like, I can get the work done in like an hour or two. Then you trade, then you trade your own money actively. I do. Yeah. I don't need, yeah, I, I, I can, I can't play with the massive account, but I, I got a pretty good size account. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, so did you take on, is there any kind of conflict with trading a personal account while working at a fund? Like, did you take the position um, of analyzing the execute, the already executed trade so that you could still trade your own money or. Well, it's, it's funny you're saying this because I'm also a regulator which is like my new job uh, on a state level. Um, and no, uh, it's, you know, I, I, that's the state level job as the regulator that would, if I were to take a position out on someone I have like a grant or a loan with, or uh, if there's some sort of enforcement problems or something, I would have to disclose that on the state level but I could still take out the trade. Um, you just have disclosure rules now. Yeah, on the state level. On the federal level, it's completely different, but not for the politicians, which I actually find extremely funny. Yeah, um, I was going to say, we all know how disclosure <laughs> rules are, how, how well they work. Yeah. Um, but on the state level for employees, it, it's, it's pretty loose. Um, on the federal level, it's a lot more strict. Uh, but honestly, you're only going to get fined. If you're going to, and I did pursue this avenue at one point, um, which was, uh, I was going to be a derivatives analyst for JP. And I, I was about to go on an interview and I had a long chat with um, one of the agents that was hooking me up with it. And he was basically like, you, you know, you can't trade options, futures, anything, right? You can only buy and hold. And I started to realize JP and those big time um, banks and, and clearing houses and all them, they just don't want to deal with the paperwork. So they just make these blanket rules up saying like, no, whereas hedge funds there, honestly, it doesn't matter. They don't care. They really don't care. There's no rules on a hedge fund. I Maybe some my... of the larger caps there are, but for, for the majority of them, they're not. Well, I mean, hedge funds really just a corporate structure. Like I know, I know some straight clowns that have hedge funds and it's just yeah. as much as if you want to put two LLCs together and you, bang, you have a hedge fund. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, um, the, the one I work, the third one I worked for, um, it was like a crypto real estate hedge fund and he was like blending the two. Um, Did he, he blow up yet? No, no. I, yeah, you met him. Um, no, he hasn't. He, he He's sort of gone back, retreated into real estate at this point. Um, you know, I was the whole time, I was, we, we're going down, we're going down since like November, last November, which is when we started to go down. I didn't see any, I thought, you know, we were way over leveraged on, on the market cap. So 
he didn't listen. Um, his his strategy, which in a bull market is actually it's a good strategy. It's it's a way to like really double down on on your income. Was he was going to these DeFi projects, throw a ton of cash on it, let it appreciate on top of that, pull off like a one point five percent daily yield on his total investment into it, which is kind of insane if you think about it. So very very risky. But in the bull market, you kind of have a little bit of a cushion because everybody's just being dumb. So I said, the but, whole crypto market's crazy. So that's why that shit works. Yeah, but when it goes down, what he was trying to then incorporate was like it would go down and then we would go flat and we would try to pull off as much money as we could because he still wanted to do the DeFi. He was very heavy on the DeFi. And uh, we would try to get out before it collapsed. And honestly, that's not a very good strategy at the end of the day. Um, I think he did take some hits. But, um, yeah, I think he's doing well now with the, the real estate. And I still talk to a few of the guys over there at that fund. Um, good guys. I mean, they, they, they were bright guys. Just, um, you know, he, he's he's very set in his ways. And, um you know, I, I, I was known as being like sort of the Debbie Downer of the group because I was like, no, it's not going up. You know, it's going down. So I was always like playing devil's advocate. I felt like this was that fund. And honestly, I probably saved them pretty close to 600K, something like that. As you said, that, that fund needed a devil's advocate. Yeah. Yeah. So, sure. um, all right. I'm going to, open it up for the audience to request to speak if they have any questions and while they think of questions do you what advice do you have for somebody that is listening to speaking greeks there's seven episodes in they've heard options traders they've heard now they've heard a futures trader they've heard some crypto and they and they want to jump in like do you what what's your advice for that $25,000 account uh, no, that was tough. Lot. Yeah, that's a loaded <laughs> question. Um, for that $25,000 account for it less, uh, not well, I picked 25,000 so they don't have to worry about like PDT. Yeah, uh, I, I think that the, okay, so being emotionless in, in your like analysis and your trade, you take a hit, you take a hit. Just take it and move on. Don't dwell on it. If you have to take a couple days, take a couple days. If you have to take a couple months, take a couple months. Don't emotionally trade or chase trades. That that will wipe your account quicker than you know. Um, stick to your good risk management rules. Um, you know, I, when I was trading, I did the mathematical expectation model. It's a really easy model to, to run. It's it's essentially the frequency of your wins times the size of your wins in percentage minus the frequencies of your losses times the frequency, the size of your losses. And you want to be above zero. If you're above one, you're doing great. If you're between zero and one, maybe you should look at each individual trade a little bit. And that, that's kind of what I do now at the fund. Um, and, and that'll help you. Be like, okay, what are the consistencies with these losses? Is there something I can improve upon? Or should I just walk away from these types of losses and start to focus on my wins? Because now I get a quality of a trade rather than, 
you know, taking too much risk out because I think risk, it, it's really tough for the smaller traders. I really, I really think it is. Um, yeah, I think, I think it is. And I, I, I think it's important and interesting to note that in the seven episodes we've come through so far in this, it's everybody has had the same input. It's, it's all mental. Don't come in yeah. into it as an emotional game. You're not going to win every single time. Um, you just can't get emotionally invested or you're going to blow up. Yeah. And, and, and don't like I, for years I got into this, you know, I was doing very well, but it, it, and it kind of caught up to me, but like, make sure you go live your life. Don't, don't trade your the rest of your life in a basement. Go enjoy yourself. Like um, sometimes when I am actually say it louder trading, for the crypto traders. I know, right? At well, least I get weekends <laughs> off with the equities markets. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I just, you know, when I'm actively trading a lot and I'm, I'm hitting it out of the park, sometimes I'll just go off and do other things. Like I, I do weird stuff to just take my mind off it, just to come to peace. And yeah, some of it sounds weird as shit, but I mean, I, I grow cactuses in a climate that I really shouldn't be growing cactuses. That just, just staring at them kind of takes my mind off it. Or, I go shoot guns and, and, you know, I know those are two wildly different things, but that's what calms my mind and gets me out of maybe the bad trade I just made or maybe getting, getting me out of this euphoria. Cause that's another thing that will kill you is getting too overconfident, right? Like how many people in 2017, when we hit 20 K were like, this is going to a hundred K. And then, then like in three months, their million dollar account went down to 200,000, you know? Yep. They could have taken a million dollars instead they're stuck with two hundred K, which is still a lot of money, but I mean it's then they're yeah, then they're once you taste excess. Uh, yeah, yeah. That first million dollars is like just take it. <laughs> just just take it. You're gonna have other opportunities. And that's another thing, is like there's always gonna be opportunities out there. Even with the markets we're in right now and things look scary, there's still opportunities out there. There always is. So. All right, man. You got anything you want to show? Any any websites, Twitter accounts, YouTube channels? No, I mean, I mean, if this was 2017, I'd be pushing coaching, whatever I could do to hustle. But these days, I'm pretty humble and don't look for clout or anything like that. So no, just trade trade tickers and talk shit on Twitter. I don't even talk shit too much anymore. <laughs> you don't. You don't. We all we've all kind of just grown up. And we're all gonna get our band accounts back. <laughs> yeah, I can't read. I can't wait to read those old DMs. Oh, I know. I got millions of them out of <laughs> forty band accounts. I'm waiting to get back. So, yeah. All right, but, brother. Uh, yeah, if, if anyone is listening, wants to ask me a question, um, you can hit me up on on Twitter. Uh, just make sure that you. Just shoot a tweet out so I know that you're wanting to talk and you're just not some random guy requesting a DM because I don't answer those. Awesome, man. I will uh, put your Twitter in the episode description below. And uh, yeah, man, thanks for coming on and mixing it up a little bit, adding some variety. Yeah, any time. And if I, uh, if I have some options, questions, I'll be sure to jump back on and give you all shit. <laughs> all right brother all right i'll see you man all right thanks everybody for listening to speaking greeks i will catch you all next week thanks again man